Let's pray, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, just help us lay aside anything that may distract us from hearing from you this morning. We're desperate to hear from you, Lord. We need you. Just give us eyes to see and ears to hear just how good you are. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now, like Mike pointed out last week, the one another sayings are used a hundred times in 94 New Testament verses. And 47 of those verses, he gives instructions to followers of Jesus. And today I'm going to be looking at one of those sayings that were given to the followers of Jesus. And I'm going to be looking at a, one, a love one another sayings. And I kind of feel like we could just leave it at where Andrew left it because he, he, he did a brilliant job. And yeah, so what do you say? I can step off and... <laughs> I mean, I know. Um, so I titled today, This Love. It's defined and it's divine. Love. In the English language, the word love can be one of those strange, fuzzy kind of words, can't it? Because here's the thing. I love Mexican food, and I love nachos, and I love surfing, and I love going for hikes. But then I'll use the same English word to describe how I feel about my family. Like, I love my wife, I love my kids, and I love God. So I love these things too. But if the word love means the same thing in each of those scenarios, then I have issues. And I have issues anyway, but that's a different story. <laughs> but you can see what I mean. It can, be, it can be a confusing word because, it, because I can use it to refer to something I have preference for, to something that I like doing, to something that I have a lifetime commitment to. And then we add on top of that that our culture today is one that is, on the one hand, so thirsty for love, but on the other hand, we live in a culture where truth is relative and absolutes, if they exist at all, are seen to be hateful. So everyone defines love differently. There are a lot of people who are like love is love. Love means let me do me and you do you. Or love means I'm going to fight for what's right. Everyone sees it differently. Everyone expresses it differently, don't they? And the problem that raises is that when you become a follower of Jesus, and there is all this talk about love in the Bible, we tend to import into that word that we read in the Bible what we think we already know it means. And of course, what we think it means is just a lifetime of training in our culture. So when we come to the Bible, what we need to do is dismantle that and start all over again. And fortunately for us, God knows this about us. He knows this about our culture. He knows we should not be responsible for defining words like love. And so he defines it for us. Let's see what the Bible's definition of love is. John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, it reads, A new command I give you, Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now, the context of this passage is that Jesus is trying to set a framework to the community that he wants to see. 
having just announced that his time left with his disciples will be short, and having insisted that his disciples cannot come with him in his Passover death and ascension, Jesus then begins to lay out what he expects of his followers while he's away. And according to Jesus, this new community are to be marked by a new command. Now, this new command is not new in the sense that nothing like it had ever been said before, because the Mosaic Covenant had already given two love commandments. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, we read, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. And in Leviticus chapter 19, verse, verse 18, we have the words, Love your neighbour as yourself. And Jesus himself taught, like Andrew was saying, that all the law and the prophets were summed up in these commandments. That is, love God and love neighbour as yourself. John himself can also recognise that in certain respects, this is no new commandment at all. Why then should he report that it is new? Think about this. The command to love one another has almost no meaning if Jesus' words were to stop there. It is its contextual presupposition of, as I have loved you, that gives it meaning. The newness of this command is bound up with the new standard of Jesus' love for you and for me. It's not just love one another, but instead it's love that is defined. This command is not just new, though, because of the new standard of Jesus' love. It's also new in that it is a way of loving others that is designed to reflect the loving unity that exists between God the Father and God the Son. This love, therefore, is also designed to bring about amongst its followers the kind of unity that is categorised by Jesus and his Father. Because remember, Jesus here is addressing his disciples. He's talking in-house here. Now, you may say, isn't that a little bit exclusive? And you could say that if you just pluck this verse out of context from the Gospel of John as a whole. Or if you took it out of the context of the New Testament or the Bible as a whole, because John's gospel insists on the love of God for the world, it confesses that Jesus' self-giving sacrifice of love is for the world, to which us, his followers, are sent out. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus commands that his followers love their enemies. And the parable of the Good Samaritan teaches us that we are to love everyone as Christ has loved us, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of ethnicity or religion. So it's not at all that this new command is exclusive when placed in context. As the New Testament as a whole sometimes focuses on the love that is to be expressed to the world, and sometimes on the love that is to be expressed amongst believers. And here in John, it is a focused look at how believers are to love one another. But this still has the purpose of blessing the world. It's still all-encompassing because it's by how we love each other that, that the world will know that we roll with Jesus. So this command, it's defined and it's divine. Now, this new command, it would have been frustrating for the disciples. And let's be honest, it can be hard for us to swallow too. Because when you start thinking about it, 
you can no longer define love the way you want to define it. Because Jesus defines it for us. And Jesus' definition of love is the way he's loved us. He defines it as divine. Love now has a definition. Why would God do this? Because he knows that we should not be responsible for defining words like love. Think about it. If you or I were in charge of defining the definition of love, you'd define it according to you. You would be at the centre of it. You'd already know who you'd love and who you wouldn't. But Jesus knew this. So he said, here is what I'm going to do. From now until the end of time, if you ever want to know what love looks like, it looks like me. It looks like Jesus, church. So if you ever get confused of what love is or what a loving Christian should do, you don't have to listen to a podcast on it. You just need to go to your Bible and ask, does it look like Jesus? Does it talk like Jesus? Does it walk like Jesus? Move like Jesus, sound like Jesus and his love. And when we understand that he has defined it and that he has defined it as divine, it's compelling. Think about it. How has Jesus loved you? He loved you in your sin. He loved you when you were separated from him. He loved you when you did not love him. He loves you even though you cannot repay him. He loves you even when you try and run. He loves you when you fail him repeatedly time and time again. He loves you with unmerited grace and favour. It's relentless, it's unearned, but he gave it to you anyway. How am I doing? How are you doing with loving the people in your row? With loving the people in this community? If you, if I, love the people in this community the way Jesus loved us, what would it look like? Because his love, it changes everything. Let's, let's dig a little deeper and let's take a look at this defined and divine love, what it isn't and what it is. And, and I'm sorry, this message gets no less convicting and it gets no less challenging. I personally have been so convicted and challenged in preparing this message. And I pray that as I deliver this, it doesn't feel like I'm preaching it at you. Obviously, in the simple sense of the word I am, in that I'm here and you're there, but I'm more preaching this message at myself. And as I preach it to myself, <clears throat> you get to listen in on that. Be challenged by it, encouraged by it, or just given something to think about. So I pray that you never see it from the perspective of me being up here on a soapbox or me having all of this together, because I don't. I'm definitely a work in progress. Let's read from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 13. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonour others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in, the, in evil, but rejoices with the truth, that always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. Now you, have made, you may have heard these verses before, because they often get read at weddings. But of course, Paul didn't write this for weddings. He wrote this as part of his challenge to the church community that he had started in the bustling city of Corinth. Because he had heard a report that things were not going well at this church. On the one hand, the church was experiencing miraculous gifts like tongues and prophecies. They had gifted leaders, teachers and communicators. They were active, growing lots of, mini- growing, lots of ministry going on, serving people and serving God. But on the other hand, there were a bunch of Christians in this community suing each other. People were angry. There were all these broken relationships and their Sunday services were a wreck. So Paul is like, time out. Your Sunday gatherings are actually having the opposite effect of what Sunday gatherings should be about, which is celebrating the good news and reminding us all that we are a community of love because of Jesus' love for us. And so it is into that chaos of a church community that Paul writes this sublime chapter. And man, these words of Paul here are a masterpiece. He must have had just the right amount of coffee that morning to to pen this. So in verses 4 to 7 where it reads, Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonour others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Paul here is actually giving the Corinthian church a picture of everything they are not. In these verses, Paul is not just reflecting on what love is. No, what Paul is doing is he's collecting all the things that are wrong with the Corinthian church that he's mentioned at other places in this letter. In other words, the Corinthian church was filled with people who served God and served other people. They were ministering, they were active. 
but they were filled with impatience and pettiness and pride and fighting and harshness and dissension. So, Paul, so what Paul is saying here is it is possible to do all of your morality, all of your serving of other people and helping the poor, obeying the law of God. You can do all of that, not for God, but for you. Not for others, but for you. All for your own sake. You might say, well, how could that be? Well, you do it to feel good about yourself, to feel needed, to feel significant, to feel better than people who are not as decent and as busy and as moral as you. You do it to put God in a position where you think he has to answer your prayers. Now, if you want to understand what Paul is talking about here, I can do no better than give you an example from my own life. And I'm about to take one on the chin here. So God really challenged me with this a few months before I took on the internship here. At that point in time, I thought I'd made all of these sacrifices for God. And I had to an extent. I'd felt God calling me into church ministry work, which I resisted for like 10 months, but he won in the end. I sold my clinic. I found work for someone else. Started studying my Bachelor of Theology. We as a family over the years had made all types of sacrifices. Things got harder, not easier. But at this stage, I wasn't really active in any leadership at church at all. And Katrina, we'd gone through all this, and Katrina's like, you're doing all of this, but are you actually going to get involved in the church? <laughs> and at this time, God was challenging me with the exact same question. Made all of these sacrifices, we were genuinely doing it for God. But I was so resistant to actually participate in church. And here's the thing I had a secret belief that my image was better than my substance. I didn't even realize that I was walking around feeling that way. But my dominant belief about myself <clears throat> was the more people saw, the less they would like me. I believe that the more that people saw of me, the less they would respect me. Because I thought maybe they wouldn't think I was smart as I thought I was. I didn't think I had the wisdom that I thought I needed. I felt the more they saw, the less they would love me. And God really challenged me in this and flipped it for me. He revealed to me that I have to stop auditioning for some role in people's lives. That I don't have to prove that I deserve my spot in the room. I was challenged to stop thinking in terms of proving myself and to start thinking in terms of contribution. I was challenged to start seeing everyone that I came across as an opportunity for me to deposit something in, not prove something. Because what I realized when I was trying to prove something is I wasn't acting out of love at all, even when it was a loving act. 
to prove something, you need someone to think of you in a certain way. And when you work from that, this starting point, your act of loving service is not actually about them at all. But instead it's about you. What are you getting out of that act? My whole motive was off. My motive was inward. And if I'm honest, my acts of service were actually more about me than others. I was after validation. I was after acceptance. And this inward focus was actually stopping me stepping into this space. Because I knew I wouldn't get the validation that I was after in a church ministry space. I was doing things for my sake, not others. And God challenged me in this and said, well, if all of this isn't about you anyway, and it's about me and my love for you, who cares what people think of you anyway? Because my opinion of you is all that matters. In all of this, what was my problem? In all sorts here. <laughs> what was my problem? Loving people with this defined and divine love of Jesus. A love that does not seek its own. Paul in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 reveals what my desire in all of this was really for. And it, and it is the same thing that your soul longs for. It's to be face to face. It's to be fully known and fully loved. In this verse, face to face, what does Paul mean by this metaphor? When you are face to face with someone, you really experience that other person. You, didn't, you, just don't, you don't just know about them, you actually experience their attributes. When someone brings their face up to your face, the nearness itself is an act of affection. What Paul is saying is this, is that the one thing that you were built for, that you must have if you're going to love people the way Jesus loves you, is you need to gaze on the very beauty and glory of God. You need to have an experience of his love and intimacy towards you you need to know that you were delighted in. That is what you were built for. In other words, the face, in other words, the face, the smile of his face is what you've been looking for in all other faces. And to know that his face has wept for you will wipe away your tears forever. That is what actually changes your heart. It changes you from an inward focus to an outward focus. Your deeds of service to others and to God are radically changed in their motive. To be known but not loved, to be loved but not known is not what our heart needs. We need to be fully known and fully loved. To have someone know you to the bottom and love you to the top, then in that relationship I'm safe. In that relationship, finally I'm affirmed. 
how can Paul say that he is fully known? He can say that because Paul knows that God himself came into the world as the person of Jesus. And when Jesus took on flesh, he knew us. He looked to the bottom of us and he saw all about us. And at the end of his life, he doesn't reject us. Instead, out of his love for you and for me, he went to the cross and he endured pain and suffering and he bled and he really died. He died for you and he died for me. He took all that we deserve so that we could be face to face with God. Fully known and fully loved. It's only when we experience this love face to face that we can love others the way Jesus has loved us. The love that Jesus speaks of here, the love that Paul speaks of, it is what the Greek text of the Bible refers to as an agape-style love. This agape type of love that we are to show to one another, it's outward-focused, it's not inward. It's not about us. It's about a settled purpose, to act in a way that brings about the well-being of another. This means that the purpose for our human existence is to both receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and then to give it out to others. Creating this ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love, regardless of whether they deserve it or not, and regardless of their response, because that is the love we've been given in Christ. It is impossible to get to your knees and say, Lord, search my heart. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me grace. Thank you for pulling me out of that miry clay and putting me on solid ground that I did not deserve. And then come out and look at people and withhold that love to others. If we live how we're supposed to live, loving people like Jesus has loved us, the Bible tells us that something will be so ridiculously contagious and explosive about our communities that a world that doesn't want to hear it will not be able to resist. We need to go back daily to that moment where he won our heart. Find yourself in the loving embrace of your Saviour and live out of that love. Share it with one another, day in, day out. Because what else can you do? What else can you do when you've met with God and His relentless love for you? What else can you do but share it? and give it to those that don't deserve it, to those that will never pay you back, to those that will never say thank you. 
to those that will never acknowledge you or give you any affirmation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, in this moment, be real to us like you never, ever have before. Take us back to the genesis of our faith. Take us back to the garden where it was just you and me. Take us back to that moment where you won our heart. Lord, help us never forget the moment you saved us, the moment you healed us, the moment you freed us from all of our chains. Lord, empower us to live out of that love and share it with one another. Turn our blind eyes and deaf ears to the ones that you love. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.